This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast devoted to covering topics that lie on the intersection of finance and energy markets. I'm Brian Doherty, and I'm here today with the always engaging Hill Vaden. Hill, how are you doing so far this week? I'm doing well, Brian. How are you? Pretty good. You know, we've got fall weather hitting us. That's always refreshing, I find, at least. Well, it smells like fall in Houston, but it's still hot. Like You can tell that the leaves are dying, but, but it's still 90 degrees. Uh, so I tell that the leaves are dying. They're airy. <laughs> that all sounds very positive. Yeah. It's better than it was. Than it was. <laughs> okay. Um, and we've got a fresh face to our podcast today. We've got Brian Matt with us, who's the head of ESG Americas here at IHS Market. Brian, welcome. This is your Hi. first, but given the importance of your sector, I hope uh, not your last visit here to Energy Sense. I bet it will not be. Uh, thanks for uh, having me on today. Um, I think my background sounds today will be the lawnmowers outside uh, taking care of those leaves, uh, plus my <laughs> dog running back and forth here. Um, you guys know how it is. Uh, this week, uh, with the kids back to hybrid schooling, that means my dog can attack uh, all four of us in the house uh, during important moments instead of just me. So it's uh, it'll work. We welcome out. all visitors, Brian. <laughs> it's just how we roll here on Energy Sense. That's great. We also have a return visitor today who I think sometimes has a dog in the background as well, Roger Dewan. He heads up our financial and capital markets team and always has his finger on the pulse of all things energy, which include ESG and how it's impacting the energy space. So, Roger, thanks again for joining us. Thank you for inviting me again so I didn't screw up too much last time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we'll have you back anytime. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, okay, so what brought us here today is actually Hill and I, we wanted to have this conversation because in our news feed just the other day, it popped up that it was the 50th anniversary of Milton Friedman's seminal essay that was titled, The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Profits. Um, that was published back in the New York Times Magazine back in the day. And needless to say, it was a piece of work that was often credited as a key influence for a generation of executives and political leaders. But uh, I think we can venture to say that things have changed quite a bit, particularly over the last couple of years. And so first, I'm going to head to you, Brian, and I want to put you on the spot. First things first, Friedman's essay. Do you think it's officially outdated at this point? And then can you also give us a little bit of a brief description of what exactly ESG is and, and its recent rise in importance? Ooh, uh, outdated? Um... Well, you'd probably say yes. Uh, there, there's uh, the business roundtable statement from last year, uh, 180 CEOs from uh, public companies, a few private companies as well, getting together and uh, stating explicitly that uh, they all companies should have a social purpose, not just uh, the, the the purpose of generating profits. I think that was the counterpoint to it. Um, I, I think you see more and more companies uh, heading in that direction um, and much more of the investment community heading in that direction. So uh, I won't say it's dead, but uh, 
uh, it is maybe under some assault here. Uh, we'll see how things go down the road. Um, as to the ESG topic, though, obviously, um, environmental, social governance, investing, uh, essentially the, um, uh, the the hallmarks of uh, non-financial or extra financial characteristics that might add on top of um, the financial values that uh, Milton Friedman would be most focused on um, are, uh, are now driving a lot more investment decisions um, of any type uh, across all asset classes uh, than they have been at any point in history. And um, that, that's certainly uh, increasing in speed, even as we pass through COVID. Um, so I'd say we're seeing a lot more interest uh, within this space across capital and financial markets as companies start to understand how they're evaluated uh, by these types of portfolios. And also as the asset managers, as the portfolio managers themselves, learn how to speak in those uh, ESG or non-financial terms. Um, any of them can open up a textbook and know what revenue and assets mean, but uh, some of them have to think about um, what does uh, emissions mean? What does human capital mean? Um, some of these new terms that they maybe haven't had to work with before. When you mentioned, so, you know, you just flagged some of the importance to investors as well, um, uh, the, the ESG component. And could, could one interpret this as further validation, perhaps, of Milton Friedman's idea that because the investors are prioritizing ESG, therefore, in order to pack, maximize profitability, companies too need to prioritize ESG? That's fair. I, you know, you do have to think of this in time horizon perspective. Um, if I'm issuing a 30-year bond today, you can be pretty sure that the impacts of climate change that we're seeing are going to have um, output and results that will affect our assets and might affect our uh, revenue trajectory uh, within the span of 30 years. Um, it may not be the case for uh, if I'm raising capital for one year, two years, three years, uh, much shorter periods of time. Uh, but there is a, an impact of time horizon. And, uh, you know, some ESG experts would say that uh, the um, uh, sort of the long term impact, uh, it will be felt in every way uh, from opportunities and risks on the balance sheet and on the income statement in the end. Um, that's probably, you know, I think Mr. Friedman would agree with uh, that side of things, but uh, um, he, he would always have a focus on, you know, making sure that uh, uh, the shareholder capital, which of course would tend to have a shorter term uh, impact, uh, is preserved first. Uh, sometimes uh, other asset classes have longer uh, expected lives. And when we think about applying ESG, I, I mean, naturally there's going to be some sectors or segments that are more impacted by a rise of environmental and social governance um, topics, energy being one of them not surprisingly. So, I mean, Roger, can you give a little bit of perspective here as to exactly how this ESG narrative is now being integrated into the energy space? And is it is it a threat to the energy space or, or is it just a new opportunity for evolution? Well, uh, it's a threat if you're not adapting to it and it's an opportunity for the ones who, who seize upon it. But from my experience on the, on the investor side too, uh, that topic of discussion has really changed nature in the last two years in the US, in Europe earlier. Uh, but now we need to speak about that, especially when we're talking about financial clients who wants to hold that asset like private equity. They really need to integrate these aspects uh, of uh, the debate and the data into their 
portfolios and uh, and the, their investment uh, structure they're putting together because they're keeping the asset for a long time and how they mix. And if you're a uh, focused on infrastructure or energy, you really need to think about it doubly and triply, correct? Because you will be impacted not only on the ESG, but really on the valuation if that start to be impacted, correct? So uh, it's a very, I mean, it's a key topic for, for all the investors right now. Uh, is it the same on the industry? Absolutely. I mean, the pressure is there. You can see it in the proxy votes. Uh, you can see it on the pressure in integrating and disclosing uh, uh, data on emissions, how you calculate them, what are the benchmarks, uh, uh, what are the standards, how you compare. All of these things have become crucial issues. I mean, not secondary issues. And is this somewhat, uh, or is the ESG prioritization is it somewhat the next logical step in too big to fail that, that it seems to me that ESG really favors the largest companies that, that a small startup is going to have a hard time prioritizing ESG in the way that maybe one of these large behemoth you know global corporations can prioritize social governance or the environment in a way that say an independent producer drilling holes in West Texas has a harder time prioritizing. Is, is, is this favoring the largest players? I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I think if you're specialized like an ENP and, you know, certain metrics, you'll, you'll see changes in behavior, you know, methane flaring and things like that uh, will have to be addressed. Uh, they'll have to, but they're not uh, uh, punishing, the, uh, punishing on the companies. They, uh, uh, I mean, through efficiency, you can create real advantages. The big portfolios are complicated to, to manage and, and to calculate and to, to match, correct? So uh, they have the means, but it's really add to cost too. So I, I don't know. I think a small and nimble can adapt as well as a, a big and deliberate. Well, I might take an angle on that from the investment community side. So, Roger, you're thinking there from the uh, the uh, yeah. energy or portfolio side. Uh, when I think about the investment community, when we talk to investment managers, um, so there is uh, generally there's been a natural concentration of uh, assets over time into the large passive players, but also consolidation of some of those active players as well. Uh, most of the large asset managers in equity and fixed income across all asset classes have built up um, a, a good stable of knowledge, uh, dedicated research departments, uh, data feeds, uh, whatever they need to review a company from a non-financial or extra financial perspective. Uh, but again, a lot of that is data. And one thing with ESG is it, it some of the information and the real research that you do from the ground up uh, may not scale quite as well as financial information. Um, it's uh, sometimes the, the smaller, the thematic or the positive screening type of portfolios uh, find the best performers on ESG characteristics uh, from a bottom-up perspective. Uh, sometimes those actually uh, don't have uh, much of a scaling uh, impact. And, and smaller managers uh, can uh, find those companies and, and help to uh, to outperform and also meet the goals of some of their mandates. So uh, there's some of that too big to fail in the investment community, but uh, there's also a piece of it that um, uh, maybe really has some diseconomies of scale too. So you mentioned can, can sorry, go ahead. CSG pretty quickly. Go ahead, Hill. Sorry. Sorry. So so the small players can make ESG a priority. Um, you know, pretty quickly, even without some of the potential scale and at least, you know, revenues of these large yeah. multinationals. 
Yeah, think of uh, impact portfolios. Uh, you do have uh, the UN Sustainable Development Goals is one example, where uh, if you have an impact portfolio that has a goal of uh, helping to improve any of those UN SDGs, um, that type of bottom-up, uh, ground-up work uh, can probably be done just as efficiently in a small firm uh, as in a large firm. So that is a place where um, there is sort of a niche there available for um, uh, for smaller investors as well. Um, from a, you know the top-down perspective, uh, show me the the best ESG performing securities across the S&P 500, yes, there's a scalability to that. BlackRock or Fidelity will probably do that at slightly lower cost than a small firm. Um, but it does produce sort of that uh, advantages for both um, large and small investors. So, Brian, you, you mentioned something I think is really important when we talk about ESG, and that's data. And the standardization of data or lack of standardization of data, I'll be honest, I find it all very confusing um, with respect yeah. to exactly how these companies are rating their ESG performance. Uh, a lack, I think it appears to be a relative lack of consistency across different different companies and how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. What's happening in that space? I mean, it, it, it to me, it seems to lend itself to greenwashing, right? That it depends on how you do the math or we can call it creative accounting. <laughs> uh, that's where I get concerned about, you know, this how we're seeing this um, narrative evolve. And can you give us a little bit more clarity around exactly how that works? Oh boy, there's a there's a few questions in that. Uh, so I guess to, to to take yes, there are a number of different standards here. That number of different standards is uh, probably going to increase before it decreases. Uh, there's a group called the Corporate Reporting Dialogue that uh, has a couple releases out recently that is trying to have each of the major reporting framework providers um, sort of connect their. Um, their analysis and their frameworks to each other uh, to try to create some interoperability. The reality is, um, since so much of this is being driven by regulatory requirements in different regions, particularly in Europe, um, there's always going to be a, a drive on this from uh, from the regulator, not just what the uh, investor or what uh, other uh, stakeholder groups want. Uh, and in fact, a lot of just uh, individual NGOs may have, um, you know, a, for example, a human capital disclosure framework that they're interested in. Um, and not really uh, looking to build out a full ENSNG framework. So, um, yes, it is fairly complicated. Um, I'd say uh, if over time you have seen at least more participation by companies in that process, however. Uh, SASB, Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, was set up with the goal of finding uh, what is material for each industry uh, to disclose. And from there, included both companies and investors, as well as other stakeholder groups, in trying to determine what are the right things for companies to disclose. And hopefully, um, focus on just the material items, not having to fill out a roster of 500 or 1,000 questions, but really the 15 that matter the most. So that's what I'd say on the the, uh, the standardization side. We're probably going to see less standardization before we see more. Um, I think uh, over time, the uh, EU taxonomy, for example, around green finance, um, if you do business in the EU um, starting uh, 2021, 2022, you'll start to be affected by um, some of those uh, EU regulations around non-financial reporting. So uh, this may be something where the, the most progressive regulators uh, will be involved. Uh, boy, as, as to greenwashing, um, you know, a lot of ways to take that down. There is uh, certainly uh, you know, some opportunities for companies to um, uh, to you know make things look the way they aren't uh, in reality. Um, right now, uh, very few U.S. companies provide any level of audit or assurance 
on their ESG data, the same way they would for financial data, where there's a full audit process. A lot of European companies are providing that assurance. It's not 100% yet, but it's probably approaching a majority uh, that are doing some level of assurance, having a third party review their disclosures. Um, we may get there in the US based on demands from all the other stakeholders um, to have something that looks a lot more like audited financials for some of these non-financial values. But it's fair to say then that, you know, if we, if we kind of go back to energy, uh, naturally there, there might be some more challenging ways to tackle the environmental side of an ESG mandate, but in an energy, in the energy industry along the social and governance side, that could be a focus that would make it a much faster transition or rise within ESG ratings within energy companies because they can focus on other aspects of the ESG and not necessarily, I, I'm going to venture to guess that some of the environment, environmental initiatives are going to be longer term. Um, than what you would see on social and governance. So is that fair that we're seeing some companies really focus specifically on on the portions of the ESG narrative that they can affect change most quickly? Are you seeing that, Roger, in the in the energy companies? I mean, we're seeing it in the energy companies. I mean, we're starting to see uh, 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 wind power on oil platform and things like that, uh, green energy uh, into uh, an oil and gas project to lower its carbon footprint, yes. So we're starting to see that. Obviously, the economics really matter and the economics are getting there. So uh, we will see a lot more of it because now it's cost competitive. Uh, I mean, that's an area which is going to really matter uh, how you're going to abate carbon uh, going forward for ESG or for other score. These oil companies are going to be... Uh, uh, um, uh, asked to to, uh, to bring and I will agree with Matt I think the on the ESG side the the European mandate or the European regulation yeah. it could become pervasive just because it's there it's first it's enforceable uh, it's a big standard is going to apply to anybody who wants to do to do anything with Europe so it has really an extraterritoriality aspect uh, which uh, uh, which uh, makes it very powerful and I think on the uh, on the for energy companies, it will have that impact and American companies will be impacted by that. I think of the uh, the horizon for making significant changes to E or to S or to G. Um, there's a fairly easy uh, and a shorter horizon just in terms of improving your disclosure of what you do already that we do hear a lot of companies starting to, to spend more time on. Uh, there's uh, plenty of small and mid-cap companies that are filing their first uh, sustainability reports, really just starting to organize the information that they have in-house already, but then publish it in a way that meets what stakeholders are looking for. But beyond that, as to making real operational changes, uh, you're right on this, Bree, the governance side is hopefully the easiest to change. If there's any you know uh, charter changes that you need made or uh, anything else that defines your oversight function, that's hopefully something boards can act on fairly quickly and easily. Social obviously takes a bit more time. Um, diversity inclusion, for example, does not happen uh, overnight uh, as much as we may like it to. It is something that uh, requires a commitment from management and from the board uh, to improve those uh, types of uh, values and improve company culture over time. Uh, and then from the environmental perspective, that can, uh, for energy companies, be, uh, be project-based. Some of that is uh, something that might have a payoff of one or two or three years horizon. Some may be much longer. Um, so it is something that companies have to look at and balance out the short term versus the long term. How about on the social that, that each of these is important in its own right? And yeah. 
environmental and governance that there would seem to be some natural consensus. Social, I could see the interpretation of what is socially positive differs from one state to another, one country to another, one household to another. How is there direction or people prioritizing the E&G while social works itself out? How does one plan for that as either a regionally focused company or more challengingly a global company? Well, you got to think of your different stakeholder groups uh, when it comes to the social aspect in particular. Um, first uh, and foremost, uh, employees are an important stakeholder group for the company, um, but also the communities that you may operate in are important stakeholder groups. Taking in uh, the the demands for information uh, from those groups uh, is really the first step in that process. Usually, companies will conduct a materiality assessment and communicate with representatives from each of those stakeholder groups and determine um, this is what the communities that we operate in are looking for. This is what our local regulators that support those communities uh, are looking for from us. Then decide what to make available. Um, there are less uh, uh, specific standards for uh, social reporting today relative to, uh, you know, we have some idea of what scope, emission, uh, scope one emissions looks like. Uh, we certainly have a good idea of what board diversity looks like. Um, those are a little bit more cut and dried. Um, some of the social aspects are, uh, are, are a little bit tougher to measure. Uh, you know, how do you put a, a figure, a one through 10 on company culture? Um, that's not easy to do, uh, but there are ways to improve that. Uh, and this is something that even just the recent uh, SEC requirements, uh, the SEC does now state that uh, companies should be disclosing uh, material human capital issues, both risks and opportunities, um, after the um, announcement for the, the changes to uh, Reg SK uh, most recently. So we will see more of these type of uh, measurements uh, coming forward. Uh, as more companies uh, decide what to disclose and how to disclose it. So what about when, when times are lean? Obviously, we've had a really challenging year here in 2020. And on the weekend, actually, I was I was speaking with a friend and, and she made an interesting observation that back in January, or I guess it was the end of last year, probably, in her company, they were all given mugs and told, you know, we're saving the planet don't use water bottles. We no longer have plastic water bottles and, and all these things within within the office space. Um, they were then just issued protocols for going back to the office and told there will be plastic water bottles and don't, you know, don't use mugs. So, um, you know, it does, obviously, this is a very specific health circumstance that we're in right now. But during lean times, is it just all about keeping your head above water? And some of these initiatives on the ESG side might lag behind? Or do we see that these ESG initiatives have really been able to continue to bring, come to the forefront, even as we grappled with these huge challenges this year? Boy, I'll take the investor side of that. Um, I think uh, the, the issuer side from a company perspective, that's going to be different uh, company to company. Um, you certainly have some uh, companies more exposed uh, versus less exposed to um, just solvency in the first place. From the investor side, uh, it's a pretty clear answer in that the investment community continued to, even throughout the depths of March, April, May, uh, of the, the, the greatest concerns of COVID, uh, continued to see massive inflows into uh, ESG 
ESG-focused portfolios, uh, both the passive portfolios. BlackRock, uh, BlackRock happened to launch uh, a range of new ETFs focusing on uh, ESG characteristics uh, back in January um, that just happened to be in their uh, upwards uh, tilt in terms of marketing uh, as we got into COVID. Um, there continue to be new uh, asset managers and asset owners uh, requiring uh, very specific ESG mandates from asset managers. The point is that has not slowed at all on the investment community side. In fact, it's probably uh, increased in pace. And let's be honest, the, the internal view of uh, how you treat your employees uh, from a health and safety perspective um, is a risk to the company and an opportunity for the company if you're doing it well to build trust with your employees and the community. Um, that is a social um, measurement, a, a non-financial measurement, uh, and something that really every investor had to take into account over the last six months. Great. And Roger, on the on the company specifically, I, I mean, I think that we can we can speak I, as far as I can recall, all of the transcripts I read from the earnings calls. Um, ESG was sneaking into the majority of the earnings calls on on most of the energy companies over the last couple of quarters, even even while they grappled with so many of the challenges that they had going on in the market. So I guess it is what Brian said, it's fair to say that it's remained at the forefront. Well, it's yeah, it's even moved further to the forefront. I think I think this crisis has brought uh, a lot of the issues of inequality and climate change and et cetera, et cetera, social justice to the forefront. So I think uh, on all element, ESG has become more relevant and more important for a lot of companies in this environment than it was six six months, two years ago uh, in, in their conscious. And I think the pressure on the, from the investor is, has certainly increased. So how about, Roger, when we I mean, when we look at the energy industry, that there is a, a mixed bag of players, including, you know, the, the mom and pops, the integrated majors that are all investor owned. And then there's a huge population of national oil companies or government-owned enterprises. ESG has obviously grabbed the attention of investor-owned uh, companies. Are, are the national oil companies or the state-owned enterprises prioritizing this in the same way? Um, it, it depends where and how. I mean, uh, what you see what Aramco and, for example, Adnoc, who are uh, the national company of Saudi Arabia and of, the, of Abu Dhabi, the United Arab Emirates, uh, they're now openly communicating about uh, these issues. Uh, both of them have a, a, a stock float on a domestic market, so uh, they need to speak that language. So yes, it's happening in the NOCs that we, I would say which are globalizing. I think the one who are just purely domestic and or collapsing, uh, their issues are very different, correct? So they're cash poor, they're, uh, they're the cash cow of the country often, etc. So the set of dynamics are very different. Uh, they're impacted through their partnership with companies who have mm -hmm. to follow that. But I, I think in, in a lot of countries, that's not going to be the priority uh, uh, at this stage. And with that, Brian, if, if I'm you know, there's a lot of partnerships in big energy projects. If I am a company with a positive ESG score and I partner with another company with a negative ESG score, am I going to take hits for their negative or does that enter into the into the math yet? 
I mean, it's possible. Uh, it depends on the structure of how you um, uh, you define that program or that project. Uh, you know, I don't think we got much into it here, but uh, that concept of uh, transition finance um, or uh, project finance based around uh, uh, of you know, issuing a particular green bond or, or transition bond uh, is oftentimes the structure that best fits to that because there's so much demand for those types of securities. Um, it does offer you some uh, uh, ability to, uh, to to borrow to meet a particular project goal that you know you can set, uh, you know, this is the ramp for improvement that I'll be able to show over time uh, and attract a built-in uh, investor that's looking for that type of investment. Um, again, I think we've probably issued almost as many, uh, almost as much green uh, this year in 2020 as all of uh, 2019 previously. Um, that's not uh, a structure that's going to slow down anytime soon. In fact, uh, some of the greater standardization with Europe might even um, push more investors to, uh, uh, to commit to. Uh, investing in green. So that's one structure where if you're uh, not sure of the uh, what the uh, net ESG impact of a large project would be on the combination of those companies, um, we have seen uh, of financing that is on a project basis um, specific to one project with a set of uh, ESG characteristics, targets, and goals um, that can uh, generate plenty of investor interest on its own. I mean, there's no denying that Europe is ahead of the pack when it comes to, you know, driving ESG initiatives forward, I would say, and that U.S. is is definitely getting there. But, um, you know, it's going to be playing a little bit of catch up on that. What do you think needs to drive the ESG movement forward, you know, specifically within North America? Do we think that it's going to that we to accelerate it, we're going to basically require some sort of regulatory coming from the top down? Or do we think that enough of the investors and the big guys being, for instance, BlackRock and their stance effectively forming a bit of market driven regulation? What do you think is required at this point? I could take that a few directions, too. Um, so the. Uh, a phrase I've heard quoted a couple times now is uh, ESG, uh, in the absence of regulatory requirements, ESG is what the 20 largest investors say it's going to be. Uh, it's what the top of, for a company, it's what the top of your shareholder base, uh, it's what the top of your, um, your your debt holder base in terms of access to debt capital um, starts to look like. It's what the rating agencies that service those two markets is uh, in terms of your access to future capital. Um, you know, we already, in a way, have that de facto uh, through private ordering uh, system already set up from, as you mentioned, names like BlackRock and SSGA, et cetera. Um, I think regulators want to be more involved in this market and, and uh, you know, make sure that uh, that all parties are treated fairly. Uh, I'm sure you saw the CFTC piece from last week. Uh, that call, to, I found the most interesting part of that was not the call to the SEC or to other national regulators, uh, but to state insurance agencies, state insurance regulators, uh, who have to start thinking about uh, the impacts of climate change on a local or on a state level. Um, there are uh, you know, 50 individual states and uh, territories, et cetera, that have to make those decisions themselves. Um, they may become um, California or New York or uh, Florida could become uh, a, a, an important leader in each of those cases, even just from a local regulatory perspective. So uh, I don't think we'll see, um, you know, the the, uh, the organization uh, at uh, uh, super national versus national level that we see in Europe uh, done here. I think we're still a little bit too disjointed for that. But uh, um, <laughs> it's uh, a lot you could put in from a political perspective there. But I, I don't see uh, I don't see. <laughs> We'll save those political conversations for another podcast. Ooh, 
I don't see a lot of uh, coordination between uh, state and federal level uh, happening here, but certainly a lot of individual decisions, um, as opposed to Europe with a, the supranational being passed down to national regulators. Um, but um, there's certainly going to be more attention on the topic and a lot more stakeholders interested in it, um, some of them very well, uh, very well funded uh, in order to lobby for change. And can that market-driven market-driven interest and, and stance, um, you know, let's say from those top twenty, can it drive the initiative forward enough at a at a rapid enough pace in the U.S. to sort of get us onto the same playing field as Europe, or is it always going to be that North America is kind of lagging behind um, when it comes to the ESG front, or does that even matter? We've always said from a governance perspective, the U.S. is five to seven years behind Europe in terms of all the major initiatives. Um, the say on pay, for example, um, the uh, advisory vote on executive compensation existed in Europe uh, well before it existed in the States. Um, you know, Europe uh, may be a testing ground um, to see what, uh, what regulations, what practices work the best um, and then be able to select from there. If the European regulators uh, um, uh, you know, make a mistake or make something that uh, doesn't really work for the market, uh, American regulators and companies may get a bit more of a chance to uh, to evaluate it uh, and maybe go in a different direction. Um, but I, I, I don't think we're, we'll be more progressive um, than Europe in pushing in this direction. But uh, uh, we will have to follow along because in the end, as we said from Europe before, um, those international regulations do touch global companies um, for the piece of the business they operate. Well, and so maybe as kind of a last question with comments from, from both of you, you know, it would seem that, uh, I guess starting with Brian, it would seem that energy as a sector, you know, has a little bit more headwinds working against it in terms of ESG due to natural resource exploitation and some of the emissions just associated with the job relative to other, uh, you know, less industrial industries. Um, but we've seen, you know, particularly some of the oil majors in Europe stepping forward and being particularly proactive on the uh, environmental side of things. Are there, are you seeing energy, how does energy as a sector look compared to other sectors in terms of being proactive at the company level? And, and then, you know, as potential follow-up, Roger, you know, what are some things that, that you're seeing from uh, energy companies and or expect to see from energy companies to prioritize ESG when there's only so much one can really prioritize when you're extracting resources from the environment. Uh, maybe on the first one, uh, you know, if, um, the climate and uh, environmental aspect is existential for uh, a number of uh, companies that uh, if they plan to uh, be operating in a similar way uh, 30, 50 years out, uh, need to be thinking about uh, what that uh, transition looks like or what the company will look like over that long a period of time. Um, you know, the, the large uh, oil integrated uh, BP, for example, um, previously uh, or just recently uh, um, are thinking in those terms. Um, and I think the rest of the, uh, the energy industry uh, uh, you know, kind of takes a lead from them um, and uh, has to at least be aware of how they're planning for that type of long-term future. Um, there's probably some companies that aren't uh, able to plan for that long a future, but, uh, um, you know, a, a name like BP does expect to be here 30 years from now the same way it was here um, 50 years before. Yeah, I think uh, energy companies are just now facing, uh, you know, two crises. Uh, one is the one generated by COVID and the collapse in demand in oil, in oil and gas and uh, some uh, other energies. And second is this transformation that they need to do and the transition they need to do to uh, to cleaner companies, whatever they are, they need to be cleaner than they were uh, and re reduce emission and really think 
their future strategy is how to transition to a green uh, a, a green source of energy i mean it's uh, it's quite a time we're living here in terms of the energy business when you have to do all of these things at the same time and uh, it's now it's not in five years not in 10 years not in 20 years and you start to see these strategies being put in place uh, and you'll uh, and we don't have one strategy or one uh, a framework that they're all following because we still don't know which are the th winning technologies uh, we don't know how the regulatory environment is going to work uh, we don't know the capital available the shareholder needs etc etc so it's it's a fantastic time and incredible time to to watch this industry and see how it needs to transform itself well, it's great. I think what you said there, Roger, is exactly right, that this is a rapidly evolving space. And um, that's one, necessary, but uh, two, part of the reason why it makes it such an interesting space to watch these days. And uh, I'll say that, Brian, you did not disappoint. We will absolutely have you back <laughs> on Energy Sense. Um, you've maybe given me a little bit of, uh, there's there's a couple things you said in there that gave me a little bit of food for thought that might spin off into another podcast soon enough. So be careful what you wish for. <laughs> uh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, the, the, the topic can go in so many directions. And uh, again, it's, you know, we, we talk about how, um, you know, 100 years ago, we built the, uh, the standards for financial accounting. We're just now in the infancy of building the stages for non-financial accounting. So everything we do in this space is uh, laying the groundwork for how we think about things, uh, you know, what could be 30, 50, 100 years out too. So uh, it's uh, a very interesting time to be thinking sustainability within energy companies or in general. And it's great because we're all trying to climb the learning curve together, I think. You know, it just, it, at least that's how it feels to me. Um, mm -hmm. Although sometimes I feel I'm definitely behind on the learning curve relative to others when it comes to the topic. This is what um, everyone feels like they're behind on. I don't <laughs> think anyone really has that uh, that great a grasp on it. I always go back to uh, the Bloomberg terminal. If you had your uh, individual sector keys across the top, your corporate key, your sovereign key, your equity key, nobody really knows how to use more than two or three of those at any point point uh there's no human being alive that knows the entire process uh it's you you you, uh, you know the uh you know your section of it and you know the right people to talk to we need to get to those other yellow keys that's what that's you it. there's the thing i definitely know who to call so <laughs> i guess i guess that puts me ahead of the game and thanks again roger for joining us as always and uh you know you're always back with us all the time i feel like i i spend more time harassing you for for conversation than they do anybody else. So we will definitely hear your voice soon enough, I'm sure. Thank you, I learned a lot. All right. Thank you all both, thank you all. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.